Welcome to the Flabby Bottom Flying Club Studios and the EA Chapter 84 Podcast. I'm your host, David Weber. If one were to consider the life of a career pilot, some might say our guest this month would more than meet those requirements. From his time in the Air Force to his career as captain in a major airline, and most recently, the builder of an RV-9. Rex Smith has earned the title of aviator. Rex will share with us how he sort of stumbled into aviation and then took it to one of the highest positions a pilot can achieve as a captain of the Queen of the Skies. Even with all of this, we managed to find some time for Rex to share some of his guidance and comments regarding aviation and what it takes to make it a career. I'm sure you will find Rex's story and advice very interesting. Once again, we conclude the podcast as I bring you the latest Chapter 84 news, including updates on meetings and events. Please, if you're enjoying these podcasts, click that subscribe button now. Doing so helps to keep this podcast available to our members and others. More importantly, it will help you know when a new podcast is available. We'll be right back with our interview with Rex Smith. Well, welcome to the Flabby Bottom Flying Club Studios, and I have a special honor here today to uh, invite you all to listen to a man that I've known for ugh, many years, uh, well before 2000 uh, in the chapter, and I uh, got to watch him build an RV-9 and go all the way to the point where he flew it, and it was absolutely amazing journey. Welcome to the studios, Rex Smith. Welcome. Glad to be here, David. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. Let's kind of jump into a little bit of your personal life story. One thing that I don't know, and I'm sure a lot of people in the chapter don't know, is where you grew up. Give us a little bit of that family history. Okay, I grew up in a very, very small town in central Montana. There were about 25 or 30 people in town. My dad worked on the ranches around there, and my mother was a school teacher. Oh, and What uh, kind of a school teacher? Well, she started out teaching one-room school. And she was my teacher for my first four grades. Oh, that's awesome. And in my first and second grade, the school had about, oh, maybe eight students scattered through about six grades. And she taught them all. (laughs) (laughs) I I graduated later into a two-room school and then finally to a a big school of high school. My graduating class was 24 people. Wow. So it's all pretty small. And what town was this again? It's uh, the town that I grew up when real young was Ringling. Okay. Named after Paul Ringling of Barnum and Bailey fame. That's interesting. And uh, then I graduated from high school in Townsend, Broadwater County High School. Now, was there a move in there or was that just where you went? No, there was a slight move. My mother changed schools. She was teaching. It was only about a 50-mile move. So we really didn't, (laughs) wasn't new. But uh, to me, it was a different part of the country, and uh, I enjoyed it. Graduated from there and then went to Montana State College in Bozeman. And graduated with a degree in what? In secondary education. My plan was to be a high school mathematics teacher. And (laughs) and how I got into aviation was along that line. I was about my second year of college. I was walking down the street of Townsend, and the lady that was the head of the draft board stopped me on the street. 
<laughs> and she says, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I said, I don't know. And well, she, what year was this? Oh, it would have been about 1953, 54. Okay. And I said, oh, I don't know. And she says, I recommend you think about it. See, here in Broadwater County, we don't have a very big pool of young men to, to uh, draft. And uh, you, you don't have, you're not married, you don't have a ranch to inherit. We'll probably have you. So the draft was active at this point? Oh, one? yes, everybody, okay. yes. So yes. Was, this, was this Korea time now? Well, it was after, after Korea. Korea. It yeah. was after Korea. But uh, the draft was still big. Okay. You were pretty hard to get away from it. So I went back to college and uh, qualified for the advanced ROTC program in and the Air Force. And that's because you had the education already, right? Well, I was, I was, I was, a, I would have been a junior in college right. to go for that, and I chose the Air Force because my family had no uh, aviation connection at all. Nothing. And nothing. Other nothing. than I had an uncle that was a mechanic during World War II in England, working on B-17s, and another uncle who was a ball turret gunner on B-17s out of Italy. But that was it. That was it. Now, what about siblings? No, I was the only one. You are the only one, okay. And my closest thing I ever had to an airplane, other than airplanes flying over town, this little town of Ringling, you used to see big formations of them flying north. Actually, they were going to Great Falls, and that was towards the end of World War II. Was one day an air, uh, somebody landed what I think was probably a J-3. It was yellow, on a, and this would have been probably 46, something like that. Okay. And when he landed on the road there out of town, he uh, got a flat tire. So they took the tire off and took it down to the local garage to fix it. And the whole town turned (laughs) out to watch him fix that tire and then take it back and put it on the airplane. And that was the first time I'd even been near an airplane, let alone touch one. And I would have been probably, oh, probably seven, eight years old. Did he give anybody rides or did he no, just fix I, it and took he, off again? If he did, I don't remember that he did. But you, I, did you get to see it take off? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that was my first experience with an airplane. So other than that, there weren't any until I got into college. And when I got the ROTC program, we had some familiarization flights. And then I took the tests and the physicals and lo and behold, qualified for flight training. So when I graduated... I um, had a flight school date almost 10 months or a year almost after I graduated. I graduated, I graduated in May of 1960, and it was late 60, sometime in 61. So there was a sergeant there in the unit. He says, well, you can put in to go on, the, on six weeks' notice. He says, I've never seen it happen. But he says, somebody can get sick or they could be in a car accident or something. You've so you kind of jumped the line yeah. at that point. You're so just, if you're, you're just, just willing to go on short-term notice. Right. So I did, and guess what? In August, <laughs> <laughs> they called you. <laughs> in August of 1960, I, I reported into Bainbridge Air Base, Bainbridge, Georgia, to start primary pilot training. But I got back up a little bit. The one thing I got out of um, the advanced ROTC program at Montana State the Air Force had instituted what they called the FIP program, Flight Instruction Program, where they paid for uh, enough flying, almost 40 hours, to get a private. 
And the idea was that you would get some flying before you got to the Air Force, and you, so you would be familiar a little further ahead. Yeah. And they were trying to transfer, get away from propeller driving, going pure jet. They were going to start people in the T-37, and up until that time, it was the T-34. I got into the transition class. Oh. And I had this, I had flown almost about 40 hours, 40, 50 hours, in a straight-tailed Cessna 150. That's what I got my private in. And that was before I graduated from and college. That was, and that was at a private airport, though? It was in Bozeman, yes. Okay. Right, in Bozeman. And, uh, but it was all paid for by the Air Force. It made it pretty nice. Yeah. I yeah. love it when somebody else is paying for the oh, fuel. Oh, yes. I would have never been a pilot if it hadn't been for the Air Force. Because they paid for that, and then I went into the Air Force, into regular Air Force pilot training. Flew the T-34, T-37, and the T-33 before I got my wings. And the reason I flew all that is that I was in the very last class to fly the T-34. When my class finished the training, they sent them all to the boneyard. Oh, you're kidding. And... uh, uh, they cut us short in flying time in the T-34, and then they cut us a little bit short in the T-37 and made it all up in the T-33, which in hindsight was a good deal. T-33 was an old airplane. It's a, you know, that's the Trenner model, the old F-80 yeah. jet. Yeah, the, the Star but it, uh, I don't know what it was. Yeah. But anyway, it was a heavier airplane. It flew like a jet airplane, like... <clears throat> where the other ones were kind of kitty cars, you know. Oh, really? And uh, got a lot of formation flying, cross-country flying, instrument flying. And uh, basically, if you could fly instruments in a T-33, you could fly them in almost anything. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but <clears throat> that was how I got my wings in the Air Force. Now, now did the, that involve, like, class study? Oh, that, yeah. So yeah. you had a lot of class study and practical you had to go yeah. get. How it worked normally, you would have a half a day of classwork, half a day of flying. So Almost if, like every day? Every, five days a week. Oh, wow. So you would have, say, you had classes in the morning, and then you would have lunch, then go have flying in the afternoon. And then the following week, it would swap. You would fly in the morning and have classes in the afternoon because each class had two flights. And, uh, and I got gotcha. you. And, of course, we had a lot of competition playing softball games for beer. And, yeah, and so the planes were never sitting idle on the ramp. They are always being no, used. Always being flying. Yeah. And, and the, the classroom work, was that pretty hard to get through? Was it? Some of it was pretty intensive, yeah. yeah. And uh, for somebody that never had any background in that, because you don't learn about adverse yaw and, and that much dynamics, right. learning to fly a Cessna 150. No, no, not at all. But uh, So did a lot of people wash out during this time? Not too many. There were a few. One friend of mine, uh, they got into <laughs> flying a T-33, got into some unusual attitudes during doing uh, instrument work under the hood. Oh, yeah? And they got into a tumble. Wow. And they couldn't get out of it, so they had to eject. And uh, both... The instructor had go, ha, happened to be an Air Force Academy graduate and had gone through paratrooper training, so it was no big deal for him. But uh, the he just st- went to paratroopers. <laughs> no, he <laughs> <laughs> no he. But the student yeah, so didn't he, do he, so well. He landed on the ground, and the wind caught his chute and drug him through uh, through a bunch of prickly pear because 
for basic training in the T-33, I was in Laredo, Texas, oh, after, yeah. Bain, after yeah. Bainbridge. And he never never really recovered to that after that. And after a couple of weeks, he, he, he eliminated himself and uh, quit the flying. Now, did he just like leave the Air Force altogether? Or? No, I ran into him later in Japan. He was an intelligence officer. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't crack it as a pilot, so he had to devote himself to intelligence, right? <laughs> well, I don't know if it was a demotion or not. But we lost a couple. Okay. Uh, and uh, But by and large, no. Okay. So what did you end up flying after the, the, the training after that? Interesting. I, I was reasonably high in my class and could have had pretty much anything I wanted. And I passed up flying F-100s because I did not like that airplane. Really? So I ended up flying C-135s, not the KC, this uh, cargo model. The Air Force decided that they wanted a jet transport. And the only airplanes that they had for transport was the C-124 and the C-118, which were pro four-engine props, pretty slow, okay. and couldn't carry so much. So they went to Boeing and said, we want a jet transport. And the Boeing sold them 45. They were basically KCs without the boom and without some of the fuel tanks. They put, took the upper deck fuel tanks out for refueling and put a system in there for pallets and seats and whatnot, and made a transport out. So it's just strictly a transport. Strictly a transport. The C one thirty five. No cargo or anything like that. Just well, cargo or passengers. Oh, okay. Whether it was whether they configured it for pallets or for seats. Okay. It turned out to be a good deal because it was the Air Force's new toy, and I got involved in a lot of different things. Well, plus you're getting that multi-engine jet time, which is a great career path, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I got involved in uh, some things like, uh, well, I was in the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was involved in that. Oh, do tell. And we lost an airplane out of my squadron down at Guantanamo on that with friends on it. But uh, at the same time, I, there was another fight going on, India and China were fighting in the Himalayas, and that's where I ended up shuttling between Germany and uh, Calcutta, India, hauling mortar shells. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so when I ended up getting home, I sat on alert because the Cuban Missile Crisis right. was still going on. And then I was in the altitude chamber in Andrews Air Force Base the day Kennedy was killed. And, oh. and we were up at 35,000 feet going through the drill and they said, we're going down, just out of the clear. We, we uh, went down real fast, and when we walked out of the altitude chamber, there was an office over in the corner, and everybody was gathered around it. And I walked up just in time to see on a TV on the wall, say, Harold Walter Cronkite, say, it's been confirmed, the president is dead. Ah, oh, what a memory. So that, they sent an airplane down from McGuire Air Force Base, where I was based, Picked us all up because they wanted us back. The Air Force was on DEFCON 2 or something like that. Didn't know what the Russians were going to do at this point. And so then we ended up flying, getting uh, people to go to the funeral. <laughs> and, oh, my you know, gosh. A lot of, a lot of uh, dignitaries and that sort of thing. But I had good... The most uh, interesting thing was I checked out as a brand-new aircraft commander in the 135. My first trip in command... I flew around the world. It was an embassy trip. 
And you take off from McGuire, go to Travis in California, Honolulu, the Philippines, Vietnam, Bangkok. So now, did you have like dignitaries on board? Or? Sometimes that, a lot of couriers, a lot of embassy mail, and uh, people involved with the embassy. It was strictly a supply trip for the embassy. And we'd end up going across to Egypt and into Madrid, Frankfurt, back to McGuire. So would you kind of call this like a goodwill type of flight? It was embassy, they called them an embassy trip, just embassy support. Huh. And our squadron flew one, uh, two a week, one each direction. So that was my first trip in command, so it was a lot to learn quickly. <laughs> so how long did this trip take? About uh, eight, nine days. Oh my gosh. But uh, I remember making a circling approach into Karachi. <laughs> first time I'd ever been there. Trying to understand their English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're trying to decipher their accent, let alone yeah, the, the directions yeah, they're yeah, giving you, right? Yeah. But the Air Force figure, if you're qualified, you could fly your airplane anywhere. And we were had to be able to go any place, anywhere in time. We had a worldwide shot record because we never knew where we were going. Wow. It was good flying. Good flying. So now, is that what you ended up... Uh, retiring out of the Air Force with, or did you fly no, something else? That's another little story. Okay. I, uh, uh, and it was late, it was actually beginning in 1965. They started to come down to my squadron, and we're, Vietnam was heating up. My last two years, by and large, was spent flying support in Vietnam. I flew in and out of Vietnam quite a bit. Okay. A couple interesting stories on that, too. But anyway, uh, they were coming down and pulling people out of our squadron and sending them to helicopter school to fly Hueys. And I really did not want any part of that. Bucket of rotating bolts with an accident about to happen. With people shooting at you. Ugh. So at the same time, it turns out that uh, airlines were hiring like mad because they were getting so many military contracts. Oh, I didn't think of that, yeah. As, you know, so... I decided I'd maybe get out. So I resigned my commission. I was unemployed three days. I signed out of my squadron on a Friday, and on Monday started ground school in Minneapolis for Northwest Airlines. Wow. And uh, flew for 35 years for Northwest. What was the first plane you flew for them? 707. Had the same engines, same limits, everything that on the 135 that I flew in the Air Force. I walked, Imagine that. <laughs> and I, they hired me because I walked in with almost 4,000 hours of multi-engine jet time. <laughs> great, <laughs> like great I, decision. And I, I, the Air Force was good to me. I enjoyed it. I'm glad right. I did it. But I'm really, the airline was a good career for me. I was kind of, I think I fit, fit in for that job. You like, like doing it? I like doing it. So was Northwest the only airline that you flew for? Or? That was the only one that I flew for. I did, it, I did apply to uh, American Airlines, and they did offer me a job in Buffalo, New York. Well, a Montana boy didn't want to go to New York. Yeah. So Minneapolis uh, was close to Montana, and my wife was from Montana. I finished ground school. On the 707, okay. as a second officer, which is a fancy name for a flight engineer, mm -hmm. and uh, they Air Northwest got a uh, big military contract. It was all flown out of the West Coast. So what do they do? They forced me to Seattle. 
and I got even with them. I came out here and I never left. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended. I did go back to Minneapolis for one year okay. because I wanted to fly the 727, and I checked out as captain on the 727. And then I flew it, and I was not a good commuter because I wasn't going to move. I commuted. Okay. Came back, and lo and behold, I could hold captain on the DC-10, and after about five or six years on the 747. Oh, so you actually got to fly four sevens. Oh, that's most of my time at Northwest Airlines was on the 747. Wow. And uh, it was good to me. By, I, I was an instructor and check airman on both the DC-10 and the 747. So I have no complaints. Now, I never flew the 400, the glass cockpit. It was all in the 200, which is okay. Uh, I still think it's impressive. I, uh, enjoy What's it, it like sitting up that high and just even maneuvering, let alone landing that plane? I mean, you're like, I don't know how many feet up in the air when you're landing. I forget that. I forget too. But you've got a radio altimeter that gives you tones. Uh, for for the, the tone, you start your flare, get a second tone, which helps. But after a while, you're surprised. You can do it visually. When we first got the 747, and Northwest was one of the early customers, I was flying the 707, and we would interfly them both. We were qualified on both of them. I did not think that was good, because the difference, the landing picture between a 707 and the 747 oh, was quite a bit difference yeah. there. And so I'd end up, <clears throat> I'd try to flare the 707 too high, so like all of us, you would just set up a 300-foot rate of descent and fly it into the, <laughs> fly it into the runway. <laughs> well, that's, not, it's, that's a good go-to uh, landing approach, right? Yeah. That kind of an airplane. Huh. So now that 747, were, were the routes long-distance stuff? Where were you flying to and out of? Almost all of the flying, seeing how I was Seattle-based, was to Asia. Oh, okay. And they were long trips. You almost always started out, your normal pattern would start out on Northwest Flight 7, Seattle to Tokyo. So you started off with a 10-hour flight right there. And then normally we'd get to Tokyo, we'd do some interport flying like Seoul, Hong Kong, Singapore, Manila. And shuttle around in the Orient, then fly home, sometimes through California, Los Angeles, uh, and... Uh, then back home, oh, 10, 10 days, 9, 10 days is normal. Some days, sometimes you would run into a 12-day trip, which is pretty long. Wow. So backing up just a bit here, I, I'm a little surprised that you you left the Air Force with, during a time where we were pretty well involved in Vietnam, and they didn't come back and grab you? Did they try? Not really, because we had a guy that knew everything running the Air Force at the time. His name was Robert McNamara, the Secretary mm. of Defense. And he was a bean counter. He looked at all the figures and he said, there are too many officers in the Air Force. Let X number out let, and let them out early if ahead of their commitment. Well, my commitment was complete. And uh, so when I resigned, they accepted my commission. I was a regular officer. They didn't have to accept it. Uh, but they did because that, that attitude was there. I had friends that did get out, and they would let you out up to one year early. But it didn't take them long. That, that little window lasted about six months. 
And all of a sudden they decided they may have had too many officers, like motor pool officers, supply officers and whatnot, that they didn't have too many pilots. And with the airlines hiring, guess who got out? They had quite a number of pilots leave the Air Force. I just find that amazing because you would think mm -hmm. in, the, in an air war like Vietnam, you would... Well, it was kind of a little ahead of Vietnam because this was mid-65. I got out in June of 65, although I started flying over there in 63, 64 because it was starting to heat up about then. And I, they came down to our squadron and asked for volunteers to go fly B-25s mm -hmm. over, the, over there as advisors to the South Korea, South Korea. 25s, really. And it was very tempting, but I had been married something like three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I decided against it, but several of the people in my squadron did, and they came back, they said the Viet Cong really hadn't figured out that you had to lead an airplane to hit it. So any bullet holes they got were almost invariably in the tail of the air airplane. But didn't take them long. They started. Right, I say, they, <laughs> they started to learn. A lot of training that could happen there. And the other problem was the B twenty five was not designed as a dive bomber. And guess what they were using it for over there? You're kidding. And, and the wings started failing, so they took them out and replaced them with uh, with ADs. I know it's a Navy airplane. I don't know too much about it, but it's a single engine airplane that worked very very well. Hmm. And. Uh, so I missed I missed shooting the guns and dropping bombs, but I don't miss that at all. No, no. I did see other sides 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 of the war flying aerovac. These poor kids, they bring them on litters and time in my airplane, and I'd have a full medical crew, and I could. The jets were great for aerovac. I could load them up in in uh, Clark Field in the Philippines and fly nonstop to Honolulu, right? And they'd put them in ambulance, and bang, they'd have them in the hospitals there. How long would that flight take? About seven and a half hours. Oh, yeah. Not too long, seven and a half, eight hours. Huh. So, uh... Just doing basic medevac kind of thing. I did that and hauled a lot of troops into Vietnam. Huh. Okay. Kids. Well, kids. Kids. <laughs> yes. I'd yeah. go back in the airplane after they got off and pick up all the comic books. Hmm. So it was, it was kind of sad. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that, but... Well, I, I appreciate your service oh. in doing that. I, I am just absolutely amazed at the sacrifice that people like yourself have made and oh. how it's, it's appreciated by certain people, but not by others. Well, nothing like the gentleman that I'm going to go up to uh, LeConnor tomorrow with because a bunch of us pilots get together every month for, for uh, lunch. Mm -hmm. And he flew F-100s in Vietnam, over 200 missions. Combat missions. Do you care to tell us who this is? Yeah, Ron Heitreiter. I don't think you know him. I don't know Ron. No, he, he's not. He, he's like me. Never had anything to do. I think he left the air, uh, left the airline, and never okay. touched an airplane again. Well, that leads me right into my next question, which is: During all this flying, military and commercial, did you have any personal airplanes at this time? Did you not have a any, one? No desire to even. None. 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 I don't. The only airplane I had a friend in Helena that had a Cherokee, and I went flying with him a couple times, looking at the mountains around Helena. But other than that, wasn't even in a light airplane. So you didn't even have your single engine 
qualifications or well, other than a private license. Well, I had a, by the time I had an ATP. Uh, okay, I could fly. I could fly. But, and, but you didn't have a, an airplane of your own to fly. No, no, I never did. So then, where did the desire to build something come from? <laughs> Not from me. <laughs> <laughs> I got out of the. I had to retire at age sixty at that time because okay. the, that was the right. rule. So I retired in nineteen ninety eight, mm-hmm. and uh, not long after that, I was at a cocktail party in Woodenville. Okay, and a, a neighbor who I did not know well, we're sitting there talking a little bit, and he says, "Well, let's build an airplane." And I said, I, "I'm not interested in building an airplane." He kept, every time I'd see him after that, he'd say, are you ready to build that airplane? Build that airplane. Let's build this. Look at this RV. Was he a pilot? No. Oh, my gosh. He just wanted to build an airplane. (laughs) He was a, he had a Ph.D. in cardiovascular physiology. And he had a business, and still does, in Woodenville, making something looking down into the blood vessels in your heart or something like that. But he had spent time with NASA quite a while, and he was in the team that would meet the astronauts as they took them out of the capsules. And, oh and he would be part of the medical team on that. But he, he was really like anything technical. So he had wanted to build this airplane, and he kept hounding me. And so what said, year did you actually start building the airplane? 2001. And you built it with? Roger Woldheis, <laughs> this gentleman. And, uh, but anyway, one time, he says, you had to look at this RV, this RV airplane. Well, I had a friend who had an RV4, and the RV6s were everywhere at that time. There were a lot of them out there. Right. My wife was giving a talk in Salem, Oregon one time, and we were driving down, and we went by Aurora, where RVs are made. Mm-hmm. And I said, let's pull in here, and I will run in and get some information. So we did, and I walked in, and I said, I need some RV, some information on, a, on an RV-9, because that was the newest one they had come out with. And the lady said, just a minute. A few minutes later, a man came out of the back room, and all I can say, they must have spotted a hot one. He took me out with even asking me and put me in an airplane, and we went flying. Oh, my gosh. I, I couldn't believe it. That's incredible. And my wife's sitting in the car wondering where I am. <laughs> exactly. she, she didn't know that you'd gone She thought I'd gone in to get a brochure. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So when I came back out... And, and I, you're still married? <laughs> <laughs> I told her what had happened, and all I could say to her, I said, it really flies well, which RVs do. Oh, yeah. And, and I, so I went back, and I told Roger, I said, okay, if you want to build that RV9... Let's do it. Well, guess what happened then? 9-11 hit. Oh, my gosh. And the airline, I mean, the whole air thing shut down. Yeah, pilots got laid off. But we talked about it, and then finally we said, well, let's let's order the tail kit. We wouldn't have too much money into it if anything goes south. So we ordered the tail kit, converted my shop into a manufacturing area, and went to work when it came. And it then, of course, everything changed, and their, their air system cranked up again. And we worked in that very diligently. We'd work five days a week, at least an hour or two. He ran his business. Oh, wow. 
at the same time, but it was written Woodenville, and all, a lot of his work was on the East Coast. So he, he was done by 1 o'clock with, with uh, this phone call. He'd come join you? He'd come here. He only lived a few blocks away, and his business was in downtown Woodenville. So there you go. So we'd work on it. We maybe worked one or two weekends when we were doing something like uh, priming and had sprayers and things shut up. But the rest of the time, it was just afternoons, usually. And we built it in two and a half years. That's pretty good. But before we ever started building, I said to Roger, I said, I have some conditions about building this airplane. Number one is you've got to get a pilot license. <laughs> I'm not going to fly it by myself. And I'm not going to be your taxi service. <laughs> and I says, number two, I'd like to have an airplane engine in it. And right. Not like a... Subaru a, or... No, yeah. I, I'd like an airplane engine. And number three, I'd like to have it professionally painted so it looks good. There you go. And he said, okay. So we went to work. We built it. Put an aerosport engine in it. Now, did you have any building experience before this? No. Except... Did you go take a class or... I took one of those, what I call riveting classes that that EAA had. At that time, they had one in Arlington. It was two or three days. And I came up and learned to rivet and cut, do a little now sheet that, work. Those are pretty well defined towards the RV kind of build. It seemed to be, right. yes. And right. it was worth every minute of it. Oh, but I agree. For somebody that... I had no idea. If you don't know how to buck a rivet or even what a AN3 is or... Had no idea. Yeah. It was invaluable. Yeah. And Roger knew nothing. I, everything he knew, I taught him <laughs> from learning from that class. <laughs> I, I can't... I don't want to deviate too much on this, but I can't believe Roger was so adamant about building an airplane. He doesn't have a pilot's license. He has no aviation experience. Did he just have a, a huge... Bug that he had to. He, he likes anything that technical, anything. And when we built the airplane, and it came time to put to put the instrument panel in it, he wanted all the latest things. And of course, Dynon was right. at the time, which turned out to be good. I was dubious because, <clears throat> you know, I figured he'll use electrical power and all that. And the only thing I, I, but I ended up going along with it, and it was a good deal. I really got so I liked it. Yeah, you started off with the D10 and. Put the D100 in. And then went to the D100, which is a D10, just larger screen. Yeah. And it, they worked well. The only thing we did, we put an analog altimeter in. Okay. As a, as a standby. Right. Right. And other than that, uh, not altimeter, excuse me, airspeed indicator. Airspeed indicator. Okay. Airspeed indicator. But other than that... Now, was is that the, what Roger got his license in, or did he go get it in like a one? Well, we were building. He went out and flew the 172 instructor with an instructor and got his private... At Harvey. Okay. That's a good path. Yeah. Not that an RV-9 is a bad airplane to get your, your instruction mm -hmm. in, but... No. He got, he, got the, he got his private, and he got it before we finished the airplane. It took us two and a half years to do the airplane. Flew the first in uh, 2004. I couldn't fly the first flight. The best thing that ever happened to me. Because it turns out I don't know, it didn't know anything about <laughs> flying little airplanes. <laughs> so I don't know if you know Terry Birch. Oh yeah, he we hired him to do the the first flights, and he flew eight or ten hours on it, and then he checked both Roger and I out because I was on crutches at the time, and it took time to mm, okay for me to get back flying, and it worked great. Then I finished all the test flying. 
and, and, and made the made the airplane manual and the, so did you make any drastic changes to the the kit itself what kind no of? we didn't we built it pretty much as van said we put an aerosport 0320 engine in it okay and we had put the separate mag you know a mag one electric one conventional mag system in it and we did uh, did something to the exhaust system it was tuned up a bit okay but other than that it was a standard 0320 well nothing wrong with that no it turned out to be great that yeah, was fixed pitch fixed pitch we did that because of maintenance. We just decided it'd be easier. And Do you couldn't. remember what it came in at after you after you painted it? What the weight was? Do you remember? Right around eleven hundred pounds. Yeah, that's, that's could, probably a little below average. We can look at the book, but yeah. listeners can't look at the book with us. <laughs> I'll, I'll try and post. Some we worked of that. pretty hard at cutting all the lightning holes and keeping the weight down. We did work at it. Yeah, and uh, it came in. Pretty, I forget, 1146 or something like that. So now where was your first good cross-country flight in that airplane? Flew over to Port Townsend to have cherry pie and coffee. <laughs> <laughs> the old Spruce Beach Cafe. <laughs> we, uh, Roger was more interested in flying cross-country than I was. Just sitting up and flying level didn't, after my background, wasn't interesting to me. I'd rather go out and play. Okay. But we flew around here, went down to, flew down to Bend and over to the coast and around quite a bit, but mostly local, did a little hooking. But after, it was good and I enjoyed it immensely. And I, I jumped through the hoops and got there at the repairman certificate with the FAA. Okay. And, uh, but I found that I was more of a pilot than I was a mechanic. Okay. That working on the airplane after we built it. I thoroughly enjoyed the building process. Would you do it again? Oh, yes. Really? But, you know, after it's done, I'd just as soon have someone else maintain it. Yeah. You know, change yeah. the brakes and the oil and, and that sort of thing. I did If you it. don't enjoy it, then it's not worth it at that but point. But I did enjoy flying the airplane because that, the RB9, I don't know if you've ever flown one. Yes, I have, actually. Flies very, very nice. Anybody could fly one. Oh, yeah. I agree. And that's kind of what fans had designed that one for. Yeah. The 9 was a cruiser. Yes. That was the whole intent. Different wing, whole yeah. different philosophy as to what an airplane is. And yeah. very rarely see a 9 as a tail dragger. Most of them are, have got the uh, the wheel up front where it yeah. doesn't belong. But, you know, that's just my opinion. Well, I always, my, my feeling is, why wouldn't you open it up there? <laughs> <laughs> well, but one of the things I did while we were building it, I had never flown a a, 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 a tailwheeled airplane. Okay. So I went out to Harvey and got my tailwheel endorsement in their champ. Yep. And went out and I I've flew that. Twenty hours of that myself. I flew it usually a couple times a week during all the time we were flying, uh, building the airplane. So I kept my hand in. That's how I got back into light plane flying. Was flying the champ. So now, would you build another nine, or would you build something no, different? No, I think I'd, I'd look at something like an RV fourteen, okay, or maybe even an eight. Uh, maybe get something more acrobatic. Just to be different, or just that you'd like the more the acrobatic part. I like. I, I'm not so sure I'd ever do a lot of aerobatics. Yeah, but a loop here yeah. and a roll there is kind of a nice. Might be thing. kind of fun. Although Terry did a beautiful roll over the airport on, on his second or third flight. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it rolled fine. <laughs> Not the Terry Birch we're talking about. <laughs> Sorry, Terry. <laughs> Yeah, the 9 is not designed for aerobatics, and I, I don't think that Vans uh, says no. that, that you should you do it for aerobatics, but, but people have done mild stuff in it. But for um, just general airplane flying, it's great. Like oh, I yeah. tell you, you can pull, that, pull it back idle and glide and glide, glide. and glide. Yeah. It was really nice. Yeah, I flew one back to uh, Oshkosh one year, and we flew over the top of Mount Rushmore, and... You know, just having the ability to sort of putt around and not have to keep up a high speed, which is what the nine is designed for. Yeah. It's just a, a great little cruiser. Yeah. It was a comfortable ride all the way back there. Yeah. And it was a pretty comfortable airplane. And Roger's a big man. And the two of us in there didn't feel too, we were snug, but not bad. Yeah. Not bad. Yeah. And that 320 did all right. Even oh, though? yeah. Yeah. One time we flew it down to the Dells. On the Columbia in the summertime. Okay. And it was really, really hot. (laughs) And on the takeoff, it it got off the ground. It didn't want to climb real well, but it climbed, climbed, but it it, it took off very nicely. So, like a 300 feet per minute kind of climb? Yeah. Yeah. Until we got up, you know. Get a little bit denser air. Yeah, a little cooler. Was this just you and Terry in it at that time? No, me and Roger and I. I Roger and Terry. You're getting Terry and Roger mixed up. Okay. So any other great adventures in the nine that you not guys really, had? Not really, not really. Flew it around locally a lot. I'd take it up myself. Oh, I'd go yeah. up and do stalls and landings and and uh, just just play play with it because that's what I like to do is the flying part of it. I did have. I'm trying to think of the gentleman's name. He flew in the blackjacks, and he uh, uh, also was an instructor and could sign off my. Recurring my two uh, biannual, biannual, and my last one I took with him. I can't remember his name. He had flown that puller pusher Cessna observation airplane in Vietnam, huh. and uh, bird dog. Yeah, uh, it wasn't the bird dog. Oh, okay. It was it had an engine on oh, front. Oh, and the mixmaster. Yeah, 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 okay, mixmaster. Yeah, and uh, so he'd done quite a bit of, of course, mountain flying in Vietnam. So we went up around Granite Falls and everything, and for my biannual, did quite a bit of mountain flying. And I learned a lot in that 45 minutes to an hour that I flew with him. And he, at that time, was offering a full mountain flying course, but I never took it, but I thought a lot about it. Hmm. So we kind of jumped over a pretty significant person in your life. At some point, you got married. You were still in the military. Yes. How did that come about? Okay, it was a, a, a gal that I had met in college at Montana State and dated in college. And then I went to the Air Force and I went through uh, all pilot training and had my wings and was checked out at McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey where I was based. And that's when we got married. And our honeymoon was driving from Great Falls, Montana to New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> For a couple of kids in Montana, living in New Jersey was uh, quite an experience. And and what did her parents think of her marrying this guy who was going to fly off into the, the I don't Air think, Force? they weren't particularly thrilled about me being a pilot, but I had a steady job. <laughs> <laughs> now, what was she going to college for? She graduated with a degree in French. She was going to be a French teacher. 
And fortunately, she used her French quite a bit when I was in the Air Force. We flew to over, you know, took some leave and went over there. And then with the airline, we made quite a bit of, quite a few trips. Oh, I bet, yeah, she could go and, with you. Right? And she could go with me. And uh, she uh, speaks pretty decent French. And it was very nice when they were over there in, in France and everything. So now did you guys end up having children? Two boys and a daughter. Any aviation interest in them? None. Zero. None whatsoever. You and didn't do a very good job of brainwashing I them. didn't. I didn't. Uh, I'm the only one in the really in the family on that I know of, cousins, aunts, uncles, that that is a pilot. In fact, they refer to me. He's the pilot. <laughs> <laughs> and like I say, if it hadn't been for Roger, I would have never gotten into light plane flying. I don't think because he's the one that kind of pushed you into he that. He pushed me into it. Now, whether after another couple more years that would have changed. If right. I, I don't know. Because I usually would go up to Arlington to watch the air show, which uh, will bring me to another story about Harley Beard. Harley, for our listeners that don't know, Harley is sort of one of the very famous former presidents of the chapter and was, I would say, probably somebody that really kind of pushed the chapter into um, being a more active and prominent chapter in the area. I think so. And I know that he was president at least part of the time we were building the airplane. Okay. But <laughs> later on, uh, one, uh, I used to stop by and visit him because he was building an RV-6 in a, in a place. And when I drive back and forth between Woodenville and uh, Arlington, I'd stop and go and look at his project. I wasn't altogether sure he was ever planning to visit it, finish it, but he was sure having a lot of fun building it. <laughs> but one year, I took my RV, uh, the 9, up to the Arlington Air Show, and I had it sitting right there on the taxi with the tail facing the, the runway. Okay. And Harvey came along. Harley came along, and I uh, happened to have a couple folding chairs. And we set those under the horizontal stabilizer, and it was hot, in the shade, sat there drinking Coke, watching the air show. And it was wonderful. It was, I mean, he was telling stories, because he had flown B-24s, and, and I know he had a time in P-51s. Right, right. And, uh, but anyway, it was a great time. And I think about it a lot, because just a few months later, he was gone. That <sighs> felt bad, but... Yeah, but what an experience. Yeah, it was really nice. Yeah, Harley was a great guy for the, the, the few times that I got to meet him. Um, I think he genuinely liked people. I think one of those few people that just, he would just be outgoing to anybody and welcoming to anybody. I don't know if you've seen it, but his son sat him down over coffee with a movie camera and had him talk about his time in the, in the, during World War II and flying. And it's on tape or on disc somewhere, because I've seen part of it. I don't know that I've seen it all. I'm glad you brought that up, because I am looking to find a copy of that. So if any of our listeners have one, I'd love to sort of use it as a backdrop for one of our podcasts. Probably find, I believe it was his son that did it. Okay. If we could run him down, he probably has it. I'd love to see it again. Yeah, yeah, it'd be a great thing for our chapter. So yeah. anybody else you can remember in the history of the, the chapter? Not so much. I wasn't terribly active in the, in the, in the chapter, except I got to meet a lot of people. 
yeah. and that a lot of them are gone now. And I thank people like John Gerke, and he talked to him. I don't uh, know if you remember him. Oh, yeah, he, I remember John. And uh, I used to go out to his hangar for coffee all the time. But, he uh, had a 140? A, a 140, it was a beauty. Oh, it was gorgeous. It was beauty. But um, the only thing that I personally contributed much is, well, I had a squadron commander in the Air Force, and he had a theory that he expounded that no group of pilots should ever get together when, without a discussion of flying safety. And I remember, I don't remember if it was Harley or somebody else who was president, and I brought it to him and I said, I'd like to give a little flying safety talk at each meeting. So for a short period of time, I did. I called it five minutes for safety, and I tried right. to limit limit it to five minutes. It never, it never <laughs> went just five minutes. <laughs> and I talked about things like the convergent zone and right. flying bird strikes over the Skagit during looking for tulips and and things like that. You know, pretty pretty straightforward. Yeah, yeah, that was a great but, little five minute that turned into fifteen minutes every time. <laughs> but discussion at the at the meetings. It was just a continuation of my Air Force background. Well, that was yeah, much appreciated. All right, let's kind of get a little bit into what I call the, the the philosophy of what you've learned throughout your your aviation career. And if you had a group of youngsters sitting here with us, and you had to give them some advice you know, on what they could do to sort of get involved in aviation and, and maybe a path that they should go on, what would you tell them? Well, I don't know in the, the today. I know in my case, I told you I didn't have any aviation relatives or background. The one thing I did do is build some models okay. as a young boy in grade school. And, uh, so if you don't have a lot of money, start building models. I build and models, and you learn things about things. And I got, I had an old 40, 049 gasoline engine. I never had a whole lot of luck flying with them because I spent all my time trying to get that engine started. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a place to start, and I don't know that that piqued my interest, but at least it's my, uh, my uh, interest or my interest in airplanes was there from that probably a little bit. Now, someone that already had the interest wants to get into aviation, that's a little harder because of the costs involved. And I don't know, but if you could get that private, I do know that right now, as we speak, there's this really booming shortage of pilots. Right. And it's projected to be that way for several years. It's a good time right now to get into it. And of course, some schools uh, have aviation programs that you can take, some colleges do. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not familiar with any right now, right offhand, but I know they're out there. That would be one way to get started, get some experience. And at the time that I joined the airline, there was a tremendous shortage of pilots also. Uh, some airlines, I think United maybe one of them, was helping pay people get their uh, private and commercial so they could be hired. And I have a feeling there might be some of that out there now. Yes, there is. Yeah. But it's not something that I have tracked very much. Yeah. So kind of building on that sort of 
I guess, dovetailing into your comment about uh, the pilot shortages. Do you see in the future um, any sort of uh, reduction? Right now, the minimum is a pilot and a co-pilot. Do you see airlines trying to get rid of that co-pilot? Do you see a, a pathway for that? Do you see that something that the public would accept? I don't know about the public. I know I would not. But uh, the airlines, particularly the cargo airplanes, are pushing for single-pilot operations right now. Now, I'm still a member of the Airline Pilots Association and get their, their magazine, and it's a big topic. But they are not anywhere near uh, accepting it and will fight it. But I also remember, because it was just before I started with the airline, they went from a uh, three-pilot cockpit down to a two-pilot cockpit. Which was the flight engineer, right? Yeah, it was the flight engineer. But there was a fight in that interim period where the flight engineer had to be pilot qualified. And Mm. uh, so, so you were hired as what they called a second officer. And they took you out and gave you a few landings a couple times a year and called you a pilot qualified. <laughs> but you were qualified. You were pilot, and you had to have a commercial license. Do you see generations accepting that though? We're not sure. I don't. I it, the single pilot is such a jump, and with the experiences that I've had flying, mm-hmm. whenever I've had a problem, I've been so thankful for the help in the the, the team in the cockpit. So they, having that second set of hands oh, and eyes is just... Or somebody that can talk on the radio to the mechanic on the ground. Will you? Because somebody always has to fly the airplane. Right. And if there's a single pilot and you've got a problem, I'm not sure who's flying the airplane. Now, of course, there... And I know that the autopilots and the avionics and everything are so much better now than when I flew. They're all depending on that being... But they're still dependent upon software, electricity, hydraulics. I mean... I had a cockpit fire in a DC-10. Okay. And uh, my co-pilot actually got burned because it's fire coming out from under the co-pilot's glare shield. Do they know what it was? Well, yeah, through after an investigation. But, But the point I'm making is... We lost all of our warning systems oh. and caution systems and uh, some of the electricity. Not one circuit breaker popped. They found out when they put the circuit breakers on a test that they were supposed to, I forget the figures, they were supposed to pop it, say, at 100. Right. And it took capacity. Three, capacity, and it went to 300, and they still hadn't popped. We got the fire out. It went out after we started turning off all electrical equipment. And we were pretty proud of ourselves. But what turned out the reason the fire went out was the wires burned into because the circuit breakers didn't pop. And that killed the electricity. <laughs> and the fire went out. <laughs> it wasn't a so darn wire thing. was the circuit breaker. But I had a three-man crew, pilot, co-pilot, and a second officer. And we were all working pretty hard trying to solve that problem. I was the captain on it. So I was still flying the airplane and I was getting turned around, getting lower altitudes because the smoke was such I was going to have to depressurize the airplane or I wasn't going to be able to see my instruments. But I think of that, but they want to go to single pilot operation. At this point, you had two other people. I had two other people with me. Actually, I had three because I had a deadheading 727 second officer sitting in the jump seat. (laughs) So 
I had a lot of help. You had a lot of help, and which was appreciated, oh, I'm sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I can't imagine being a single pilot in a situation like that. And those are going to continue, although they are more rare today. They're oh, not yeah. as, but they are still something that pilots have to deal with. Yeah. So really? having to deal with that situation and not having somebody else there to back you up while you're flying the plane is, is going to be huge. It's, They're going to have to find a solution to that before they can go to single pilot. I'm not too interested in, in it. Uh, I uh, was not really <clears throat> interested in flying an airplane and hold. What, what's, the, what's the big Airbus? A320? A340? Whatever. It's the one yeah. that carries, what, yeah. 800 people? Double-decker. De double <laughs> yeah. And I swore up and down that I would never fly an airplane because I was involved early on in the 747 program, uh, evacuation tests to meet the 92nd evacuation. And I was involved. I was one of the yeah. guinea pigs on that. And all I could think of was um, getting that many people off an airplane if if you had any gear collapse on the ground or something. From that height. And all that people getting yeah. out. Getting out. <laughs> well, guess what? I was on a trip to, to uh, Germany with my wife and I not long ago, a couple, three years, and I climbed on an airplane to fly out of London to come back to Vancouver, and I finally I got off the airplane in Vancouver, and I said to the flight attendant, what kind of an airplane is this? Well, it was that big Airbus, and I, <laughs> I didn't even realize it. <laughs> That's funny. Well, the, kind of getting back to this philosophy thing with, do you see this this air taxi thing that is sort of coming around now where they're saying now by 2035 that major cities are going to have an air taxi. This will be completely autonomous. I don't even be a pilot on board. This is just going to be a capsule that people get in and fly. I, I don't know what to think about that, whether, whether people will accept it. Maybe they will in time. Maybe they get to the point where they're so doggone good that they... Uh, but weather's got to be a situation that they have to deal with, right? I Absolutely. Mean, can I, can uh, artificial intelligence look at a line of thunderstorms and make the decision not or, to fly? Or icing, or I, I mean, you you know as well as I know that you can be flying along. That weather report is clear skies, right? But not always true. Not always true, and uh, uh, turbulence. Turbulence, yeah, great point. Clear. I don't know. I, I just really haven't given too much thought about that. I, I don't like to say it'll never happen because things have a tendency to happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> I just don't know what to say. So do you think this, the EAA, getting sort of to the EAA philosophy of this, which is, the EAA is, in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, has done a lot to promote experimental aviation, aviation where we can sort of explore these boundaries. Do you see the EAA becoming a bigger role in that, or do you see it sort of diminishing off? Because generational-wise, I don't see the kids today involved in the aviation like we were. And is that going to increase as they get older, or, or do you think the experimental aviation is going to be the same as it is today, especially with building your own airplane? 
Is that something you see continuing to grow, or do you think it's going to diminish? Yeah, and I, th- I think the build- airplane building will last for quite a while. I mean, way down the road, I, I can't say. Mm-hmm. But uh, EAA, like the Airline Pilots Association, AOPA, will fight single engine and completely autonomous type flying a long time. And whether they're successful or not, I just don't know. I just don't know. Yeah, I don't think anybody really does. And whether the technology will be that good, I keep thinking even the Star Trek movies, they had mechanical problems. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, Rex, this has been an absolute fun time. Um, I feel so honored to get you in here when I saw you walk into the the chapter meeting the other night, I just said, I got I to gotta sit down and talk with this guy. I know you, you have multiple stories, and we could probably talk for another hour or two, but I'm going to end it here. I'm going to say welcome, or thank you, not welcome, thank you to Coven Town and talking to us today. Uh, this is going to be a treat for the members, and uh, maybe we can get together again and talk with some old Harley Beard stories. It was a pleasure, David. And pilots always like to talk about flying in airplanes anyways. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again, Rex. You bet. And now the news for June 2023. The now famous Chapter 84 pre-meeting burger burn was a big success last month. And the good news is it will continue again this month. The burn is back. If you are hungry and in the mood for one of the chapter's pre-meeting burger meals, show up around 5.30, and for a small donation to the chapter, you won't go hungry to the meeting. A reminder that the last burger is served no later than 6.30, and we always appreciate some help putting the grill away and cleaning up. Our presentation for this month should get you all charged up. Sorry about that. But seriously, although it will be a virtual presentation, We are excited to have the founder and president of EarthX Batteries for June. Reg Nickerson will give a presentation on what you need to know about lithium batteries. Reg is an electrical engineer who worked for many years in corporate America and then saw an opportunity to improve and update the battery technology in aviation and other power sports. EarthX started producing products for the experimental aviation market but became the first company in history to achieve an FAA TSO for 12-volt certified lithium battery. I'm excited to hear what the company has achieved and what they have planned for the future. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Oshkosh is coming fast. With less than 50 days before the event kicks off on July 24th, the chapter is focusing on how we will participate. As you know, the chapter will once again have campsites and a gathering during the event. If you're interested in camping with the chapter, please contact one of the club officers and they can help get you the information needed. As of this podcast, there's a very limited amount of spaces left, so if you're even considering it, you might want to hurry up. I'd like to take a moment and remind the membership about our ever-growing tool crib located in the chapter hangar. If you need access to that hangar and you're a paid member in good standing, you can contact the chapter hangar manager and he will provide you with a code. Well, that's a wrap for this month's podcast. Spread the word about EA Chapter 84 podcast to your aviation friends and family. It's available for download on most popular apps, including Spotify, Apple, and Google. Make sure to hit that like button, subscribe, and of course, give us a five-star review. 
I would encourage you to go listen to previous podcasts as there are now over 20 different interviews. I hope you remember to file a flight plan for next month's podcast. Be sure to find the latest news by following EA Chapter 84 on social media apps like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, this has been your host, David Weber. And remember, stay off the brakes, keep moving forward. Thank you.